This month, Claudia Golden made history for being the third woman to win the Nobel Prize for Economics. As much as this is an outcome to be celebrated for women in economics, as an economist, Golden has shifted the world's understanding of women's labour market outcomes. Her influential research examines the reasons for the gender pay gap and the educational, medical and social progressions which prevent or enable women to work. The recent introduction of paid parental leave changes to the House of Representatives in Australia is just one way to increase women's workforce participation. But are there more ways for Australia to improve economic outcomes for women? So today on the podcast, we wanted to take a look at Golden's research, what it means for Australia, and especially Australian women. I'm Kat Clay, and with me are two self-confessed Claudia Golden fangirls, their words not mine. We've got Associates Natasha Bradshaw and Liz Baldwin. Welcome to both of you. Thanks, Kat, and welcome to Liz for the first time on the podcast. Thanks, Kat. So... I want to talk a little bit about Claudia Golden. For the podcast listeners who might not know much about her, I mean, Tash, why do you like her so much? Tell us a little bit about her. Well, Claudia Golden really pioneered the study of gender economics and brought it into the mainstream. She's done an incredible body of work that has really changed things and changed the way we understand the labour force and women's role in the workforce. The Nobel Committee raised three reasons really why they thought she should win the prize. Do you want to tell us a bit about those? They highlighted three aspects of Claudia's work. And the first is that she's an economic detective. She did a lot of interesting archival research early in her career, pulling out previously underutilized manufacturing records and agricultural records to sort of correct the invisibility of women in a lot of the official statistics. So very often in early records, women's occupation would be recorded as wife. So their labour market participation was hidden. And Claudia's work highlighted that a lot of those women were actually working on farms or in factories or in other jobs. So she was able to correct the labour market participation statistics and in doing so she rewrote her understanding of women's economic history. So that was the first part of her contribution. She was able to describe the evolution of uh, women's participation over time through many cohorts and many different phases of change. But then the Nobel Committee also highlighted the contribution that she's made to our understanding of gender gaps today. She pioneered early work highlighting the importance of children and the motherhood penalty in explaining ongoing gender pay gaps. And she uh, introduced the concept of greedy jobs. Liz, I'm really interested in that concept of greedy jobs. Can you tell us what that is? So these aren't jobs that you're a greedy person if you take up. They're jobs that are greedy by their nature. They're jobs that creep and creep and want to steal more and more of your time and pay a big premium um, if you're able to put in the hours and be on call. So a classic example is something like a high-powered commercial lawyer, someone who is doing really long hours every week, might need to be on call, but is getting a very high remuneration because of that ability to work really long hours and put work ahead of 
other commitments in life. And those kinds of jobs are not very compatible with family life. They're not very compatible with being able to pick up a sick kid from school or, you know, be around to take an elderly parent to a doctor's appointment or whatever the case may be. So Claudia's work showed that in occupations that have these greedy characteristics where there's a really high return to being able to put your life on hold to go to work, those occupations have a much higher gender pay gap. They tend to have much lower representation of women at the highest levels. And what Claudia does is she looks at occupations that have gone through changes that have made them sort of less greedy and the benefits that that's had for women. So one of the really great examples that she brings up is about pharmacy. So what we saw is that 40 years ago, most pharmacists were independent enterprises and that pharmacist would be expected to be available at all hours. And what we've seen over the past 40 years is this shift towards bigger clinics, hospitals that deal with, you know, out-of-hours needs. And so pharmacists have become much more substitutable between each other. You don't just have one all to yourself. And the difference that that's made to women is, is huge. So women make up a big proportion of the pharmacy labor force. It's a very high paying industry. It's actually the eighth highest paying occupation in the United States. Women are able to do that work because of these changes that have occurred that have made it a lot more flexible. And, and so what you see now is that women in that industry can work part time. They can take gaps out of their workforce when they have children and other things like that. And they don't see a big penalty the way that you see in other areas. What Claudia Golden sort of points to is that there are other industries that could move towards that direction. Obviously, there's always going to be some jobs that just have these time inflexibilities. You know, if you're a CEO or a surgeon or a high-powered lawyer, you know, sometimes there's, there's going to be these jobs, but there are a lot of industries that could move further in that direction. And that's one of the premises from her book, A Career and Family, isn't it? That was on the Prime Minister's summer reading list last year. And you were a big advocate for this book, Tash, as well as many of the other people in the office. One of the things that she talks about in the book is that idea of that flexibility that's come out of the COVID pandemic. Do you see this as a way that women can have more workforce participation in Australia? It's a really interesting one, Kat. We know that flexibility is really important and it's been a big part of explaining the increase in women's workforce participation historically. But it can be a bit of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, more flexible jobs allow women to keep a toe in the labour market and keep that connection through working part-time hours or working from home, as you said, during the pandemic. But on the other hand, there's some evidence that women's disproportionate use of flexibility can be part of explaining the gender pay gap that we have today. And so part of Claudia's research was showing that women are being penalised for taking the more flexible options, whether it's through less access to training, promotion opportunities, whether it's through just direct discrimination or simply not being able to take on the types of greedy jobs that we discussed that are the really high paying but inflexible jobs. And so 
I think when we're talking about flexibility, it's important to talk about it as an issue for both men and women, not just a tool for women. Increasing men's access to flexible work is an important part of the story, but also a part that Australians aren't very good at. There's research showing that men's, men are less likely to request flexible work from their employers, and then when they do, those requests are more likely to be rejected. Normalising flexible work for both men and women would be much more important than making it just a women's issue. So Liz, following on from that, I mean, Golden's work has been looking a lot at the historical context of, of women's stories through time and looking at how they've participated in work. Can you take us through a little bit of that and why it's significant? So Claudia highlighted the importance of looking at cohorts and changes in generations to understand the overall shift in women's participation in the United States. She understood that women and young girls are making decisions about their education and their marriage and their employment in their teenage years, and those decisions stick with them basically for the rest of their lives. So she highlighted that for several cohorts of women up until about the 1950s or 60s, they were making decisions about their education pretty much based on the expectation that their lives would be a lot like their mothers who mostly hadn't worked outside the home while they were young. And so very often they weren't going on to tertiary education or if they were, it tended to be outside some of the really lucrative and prestigious fields like business, law or medicine. But then she describes this quiet revolution in the 1970s where suddenly in the space of about a decade, women's expectations shifted a lot and they went from 35% in 1967 expecting to be employed at age 35 to 80% in 1979 which is a huge transformation in expectations. And associated with that, they then flooded into universities at much higher levels than before. That affected their employment prospects for the rest of their lives. So she highlights that we need to look at the decisions each cohort of women is making at each point in time based on their expectations around them, and also based on the policies and the technology they have available to them. And I mean, in that period of time, you see the contraceptive pill come out, and it's something that Golden has written about. Tash, do you want to explain that to us? What Golden showed was that once the pill, not so much once it was developed, but once it became available to young single women, we saw this dramatic increase in women's rates of graduating university. We also saw an increase in the age of marriage. And this just comes from women being able to delay childbirth until they've completed other things that they wanted to do in their lives. So the more I read about Claudia Golden, I'm really fascinated by this kind of research that she's done. She's a US researcher, though. I'm wondering how applicable this research is to the Australian context and if there's any places where that kind of style of research has been applied here. It's very applicable to the Australian context. Of course, we have different institutions and some of the reasons that things have changed in Australia are different to the US, but a lot of it does follow the same trends. As early as 1912, women's wages in Australia were set at 54% of men's wages. The rationale for this is that 
men need to support a whole family on their earnings and women just need to support themselves and and once they get married not to support themselves at all you know we have these long standing norms that have dictated women's labor force participation So in 1969 and 1972, we had these major decisions about equal pay for equal work and equal pay for work of equal value. And Australia was quite early in bringing in those types of policies. Women's workforce participation and differences in earnings improved quite dramatically and sort of early compared to global standards. And then as in many other countries, like in the US, the way Claudia Gordon documents, we've had this major increase in women's participation in work, in their educational attainment, and so on over time. But what we see now is this sort of stalling of that progression, similar to what we've seen in the US. You know, in Australia, we have these same problems persisting. We still have a women's participation rate staying at about 10% below men's. We have a gender pay gap for full-time employees of about 13%. So part of it is this greedy jobs concept that Claudia Golden talks about a lot. Um, A researcher called Kristen Sobeck at the ANU has actually replicated that work in Australia. And even though we have quite different employment structures here, we still do see that greedy jobs outcome. The way that we organise labour is a bit different. So there's a lot more people in Australia on collective agreements than on individual agreements. In Australia, it's about 60% of the workforce on those collective agreements compared to about 11% in the US. And that makes a big difference in that it compresses the distribution of wages because more people are on sort of standardized terms. Because of that, the, the sort of greedy jobs explanation is a little bit less in Australia than it is in the US. Of course, people in those more greedy jobs are much more likely to be on individual agreements. So that's sort of part of the problem. Uh, With the collective agreements, would you find that some of the lower paid professions such as, you know, with thinking about aged care, childcare, are they the kind of industries that are on these collective agreements? And we're seeing women working in these areas, but still getting lower pay? That's right, Kat. So those areas are actually often likely to be on award wages. And so those are quite standardized. You still see kind of differences within occupations because people are in sort of different jobs. The other important thing to note about those industries is that they tend to employ women who are experiencing other forms of disadvantage, like migrant women or women from lower socioeconomic backgrounds who may have had fewer opportunities for education. It's important that we note that the greedy jobs phenomenon is really a phenomenon of highly educated women. And for those cohorts of women experiencing other forms of disadvantage, other issues like access to education, access to childcare, policies for single mothers, other issues are more relevant for those cohorts. The other thing we know both internationally and in Australia is that really the thing that matters is having children. You know, women that don't have children do very well in the labour force. So I've done some work previously about the impact that children have on women's labour market outcomes, specifically related to their total earnings. And what we see is that when women have children, their earnings drop by about 55% relative men's men's don't really change at all once they have children so this burden really falls dramatically on women and it persists for a very long time so we've shown that it persists for 
at least 10 years after they give birth to their first child. What you can do is look at how much that contributes to the total difference in men's and women's earnings in Australia. And what we showed is that it's actually about four-fifths of the total difference in earnings between men and women just because of this childhood penalty. And similarly, work at Grattan previously has shown that if a woman today has a child, a 25-year-old woman has a child, she'll earn $2 million less over her lifetime because of having that child to a man that has a child at, at age 25. So devil's advocate here, I mean, is the choice for women who'd like to earn money just not to have children? Well, I mean, this is what Claudia's research is really about, right? It's how do you make these trade-offs and how do women deal with these different decisions. For some women, it might be deciding not to have children, but uh, that's a pretty extreme thing to give up. A lot of people get a lot of value from having children and, and it's a you know really important part of their life and that's more important to them than their earnings. Really, at the end of the day, what we'd like to see is you know less trade-offs having to be made. Why should it only be women who are having to bear the this cost, this economic cost of having children when they're Partners in heterosexual relationships are not having to bear the same cost. And I think that's one of the interesting things we haven't discussed yet about Claudia's research is the role of gender norms in understanding how these phenomena and these greedy jobs translate into worse economic outcomes for women. Because there's nothing about a greedy job that says only men can do it and women have to stay home. But why is it that in so many cases that's the way households are organising their lives when faced with these trade-offs? To understand that, we have to look back a long way at the history of gender norms. And I know, Tash, you have some thoughts about how gender norms have evolved. Yeah, so the thing about gender norms is that they take a very, very long time to change. And there's a fascinating stream of research that really spawned out of Claudia Golden's work, which looks at the kind of historic roots of gender norms and how they still perpetuate today. So one of my favorite papers is by Alicina and co-authors. And what they look at is different societies in history and how they developed different agricultural practices. Some societies used typical shifting agriculture, so things like hoes, and other societies moved to using a plow. Now, a plow needs a lot more physical strength to operate than, you know, handheld tools. And it's also not very compatible with childcare, which has historically fallen more on women. What they show is that in these societies that tended to specialize more in plow agriculture, historically women in those societies have had much lower labor force participation. Even today they show that those societies still have women participating less in the labor market and also participating less in entrepreneurship and in political circles. So looking more broadly at the Australian context, we've obviously got paid parental leave in the House of Reps at the moment. That's something that Grattan has advocated for in our research. It's just one way that we can increase women's workforce participation. Did you want to talk a little bit about that and, and just some of the other policies that Australia could be doing in order to increase this as well? Paid parental leave 
is a really excellent policy for targeting these problems and specifically for targeting these issues of norms and starting to make that slow change. So Australia brought in a paid parental leave in 2011 and that was 18 weeks of pay at the minimum wage for a primary carer and two weeks leave. They called it dad and partner pay for secondary carers. Now, a few changes were made by the coalition government quite recently to that policy. But this week, Labor's brought in to the House of Representatives some changes of their own. Now, what this policy is going to do is increase paid leave from 20 weeks to 26 weeks by 2026. And importantly, they're going to make four weeks of that leave, use it or lose it leave, that a secondary partner can take. I need to interrupt briefly there because that sounds really familiar to something we mentioned in our report on paid parental leave, um, the idea of use it or lose it leave. That's right. It was absolutely um, one of Grattan's recommendations in their Dad Days report. And actually, this policy doesn't go quite as far as Grattan has called for. What we would like to see is actually six weeks of leave for each parent and then the rest to be shared how they choose. The reason that this use it or lose it leave is so important is the primary reason is relating to these gender norms because if their partner is more involved in child rearing, then they have more time to work. It's also beneficial for the child to have two adults caring for it and, and forming an early bond. So it's really this kind of win-win. And the benefits can also multiply because we know that when women work, their neighbours, their peers are more likely to also take up employment. And the same applies for fathers. There's some really interesting research from Norway showing that when a father takes up paid parental leave, their co-workers and brothers then become much more likely to take it up as well because they've seen how it works, they've seen that the benefits that Tash discussed, and it becomes normalised within that community. So paid parental leave is one of these really important tools that we have for shifting those long-standing gender norms that Tash was talking about before. So what are some of the other areas that the Australian government and state governments can be looking at in order to improve women's workforce participation? Well, Kat, there's a few areas where we've still got work to do. One is in childcare. And we're eagerly awaiting the release of the Productivity Commission's draft inquiry into early childhood education and care next month. That should take a really good look at the affordability of childcare, but also at the flexibility and availability. Because one of the key themes from Claudia's work that we were talking about before is the importance of being able to be flexible with paid and unpaid work. And if your childcare provider is only open nine to five, Monday to Friday, you might not be able to take on different kinds of work. So when that childcare report is released, it'll be a good opportunity to take another look at childcare policy. And Grattan has advocated strongly for this in the past. And the other area where we have more work to do is around workforce disincentive rates. So this is a bit of a complicated economic concept. But basically, it's a measure of what your effective marginal tax rate is. So if I go to work and I earn an extra $100, how much of that am I keeping in my pocket after I pay taxes, after I pay childcare fees, and after 
any benefits that I'm receiving, like family tax benefit, is taken away. And statistics published in the Employment White Paper recently from the Commonwealth Treasury showed that for a woman earning $50,000 if she was working full-time, her effective marginal tax rate is always over 50%. So that means that if she's going from one day to two days, two to three or four to five days, she's never keeping more than half of the extra money that she's earning. And that's a pretty strong disincentive to working an extra day. I love my job, but I don't know if I'd be working to only keep 20 cents in the dollar. And I think addressing some of those financial disincentives is also a really important part of the story. Finally, for each of you, I mean, if there's one thing that you take away from Claudia Golden's example and her life to your own work, what is it? One of the really important contributions of Claudia Golden's work and the reason it's so significant that it's been acknowledged by the Nobel Committee is her style of research. She is, as we said before, a historical detective and she relies a lot on archival sources. She relies a lot on stories and piecing together people's real lives. And Leonora Rint reflected in a piece in the conversation that and his sort of storytelling and bringing real-life stories forward in economics is a really important part of what we should take from Claudia Golden's work. The other thing I, I always appreciate about Claudia Golden's research is she's really honest about what things we can do and what things we kind of need to let happen. So the case of greedy jobs, she sort of says this is really something that industries need to do and it will be better for everyone if they do that. But there's not such a huge role for government intervention in terms of changing the structure of entire industries. And so it helps us really focus our attention on the policies that are more targeting these sort of changing gender norms and making it easier for women to work and, you know, for all women to work. Thank you so much, Liz and Tash. It's been excellent to talk about Claudia Golden and why her Nobel Prize win isn't just about encouraging women in economics. It's so much bigger than that. So if you'd like to talk to us about this topic, please do find us on social media at Grattan Institute. And please, if you'd like to support our work, visit grattan.edu.au forward slash donate. As always, please take care and thanks so much for listening. 